The holidays are almost here, and that means you're about to get a heck of a lot busier. And the data reflects what you know to be true. Prior to COVID, Yelp observed a 17% increase in diners seated from October to December over the prior quarter. And that was before everyone was trapped in their houses for over a year. Capitalize on that increased demand this holiday season with the all-new Yelp Guest Manager. Yelp Guest Manager allows you to manage your guest reservations and your waitlist all in one place. Better yet, it's fee-free until February of 2022 with an annual agreement. Visit restaurants.yelp.com forward slash podcast to learn more today. Now here we go. I did that. And I built this incredible brand and winery that's all over the world. And it's been fun and hopefully has inspired lots of my colleagues and lots of people in the industry that it's there. You can do it. If I can do it, you can do it. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators served up on the house. There's more to profitability than marketing. Let's make sure that you're not using marketing to fuel a broken machine. Go to restaurantprofitcall.com to book a call with me. We can look at your current situation to see what is and isn't working, uncover the number one bottleneck restricting your growth, and develop a three-step action plan to get you results. I'm only doing 10 of these a month, so go to restaurantprofitcall.com to book your free profitability audit with me today. I'm sure most of us ascribe to the philosophy of being the change you want to see in the world. But what does that look like in practical application? As hospitality professionals, we have a unique opportunity to shape our neighborhoods by influencing what they consume and how they consume it. Andre Houston Mack is doing exactly that. Never in my life have I seen someone invest so much of themselves into their community. And today we talk about the risks and the rewards associated with betting on your neighbors to create a better neighborhood. I was running towards something, just, I guess I want to say freedom in a way, but like Tim said, a freedom of like to live my own life, right? I think a lot about parenting is like you take the bits and pieces on how you were raised and what kind of parent you want to be and apply them in kind of as a mix mash together of how you want to be a parent and the morals and all those kind of things. And I think the same way, the things that there were going to be bits and pieces and great things that I took from Keller and from my experience at working at the very top that I wanted to incorporate into something totally different, but the same standards, right? I always said to people, I realized that the restaurant industry was changing a little bit in 2004. I'd just moved to New York and, you know, New York four-star restaurants are talking like all the very tippity top. And then I go to this guy's place, David Chang has this restaurant called Momofuku and it was the noodle bar. And I just realized how things were changing. Here were these guys that had did all this training, worked at CIA, worked for the very best chefs, and they were taking the techniques and the things that they learned at the very highest level and applying it to something like street food from where he was from. I just found that fascinating. And you could definitely see the change of, you know, I mean, people were willing to pay for food, but they didn't need Christoffel to eat off of. They didn't need your waiter in a Gucci suit. They didn't need Armani ties, right? Like people were willing to pay for it. And I was very interested in what it would all look like without the pomp and circumstance, right? They still wanted to play 
Pink Floyd on the stereo system and wear jeans and shell tops Adidas. And like none of those things really had an effect on what you actually put on the plate. And that's what I was excited about. Right. And I was like, oh, my God, like it was a reflection of me, this kid who was raised by like hip hop and like punk rock and found myself buttoned up in this place to learn the rules and was also fascinated about that world and enjoy it very much. But I think after being there for quite some time, I was running away to actually find myself and to find my place in the culinary world and very much excited because it was changing. You know, there's like 40 young kids in the back, all crouched over plates with tweezers, and they all aspire to be restaurant owners, most of them, but only a handful of them actually wanted to own a place like the one we currently worked in. Um, they yeah. were all going to go back home to where they were from to do what they do. And I wanted to be a part of that in some way. And I was ready to leave when it was time to go. And that's like a beautiful and terrifying moment. I can remember like when I quit, I mean, technically, I guess I was fired. But <laughs> when, <laughs> when I left like my last quote unquote job where I actually had an employer, there was this amazing moment when I got off the phone after being canned and I was like, I'm free. And then like a split second later, my first thought was I'm fucked because yep. like I didn't really have a plan going into it. You Absolutely. know what I mean? Like the plan was kind of this idealized thing and I'm sure it'll be fine. And I know I'm the smartest guy in the room because I'm 24 and <laughs> all of these things. And then like the reality and the weight of that decision came crashing down. Did you have that moment? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. I had the actual, they call it the phantom ring. So this is back in the day. So I had a BlackBerry. And this is before the iPhone was even born. And you would get the phantom ring, like where I was so used to my phone buzzing and going off. And like the day that I quit, it never went off as much. Yeah, no, absolutely. I didn't have a plan. I didn't write a business plan or anything like that. I just leaped right in. It was a little bit more calculated than that. It wasn't like, oh, someone picked, called me and like say, hey, don't come in today. But still, there was definitely this feeling of jumping off a bridge For sure. and saying, wow, no, I can fly. I believe I can do this. And then, you know, it's like the next job is not big enough because now I'm worried about what my peers think. The only next step for me is to own my own thing. That's why most people never leave. And it was like, I don't know. But also, it was the stop and start. I just didn't know what was ahead. I just knew if I could figure out what to do, I was going to do it like nobody's business, right? Like right. nobody's business. And that's the kind of work ethic I had, right? I didn't think I was the smartest person in the room, but I definitely felt like that I could outwork anyone. I just needed to figure out what to do. And I think that's what most people in life, right? Like they need to figure out how to do something. And that was it for me. But you move on. There was definitely that feeling of second guessing. You know, it's a head game. Oh, it is. And I think the next turn in your life is super interesting because you're like broke on the ropes. and You've got to make something happen for yourself and your future family. And you choose to open a winery. And so I'm curious to know, what about getting rich slow appealed to you? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was just not about being broke, right? It was different and it was mine, right? The idea that like, the dependency on a salary is like great, but like there was no growth in it. I got on an airplane almost every single week for 10 years. It was just yeah. recently with the pandemic where we stopped. And I think like I looked at my wife one day and we we're like, holy shit, that was so intense. Not even like what COVID and all that was about. It was just like 
get off the hamster wheel and stop for a second and say, wow, that was incredible. How are we still alive? How are we still married? But I had built this business. And I feel like, you know, if I worked for Kraft Cheese and they were sending me on an airplane as much, then that would suck. But the idea that we were building something every time I left meant something. There was a sense of pride. And I had worked hard for other people, but there was never that feeling. There was pride in the work that I did, but it never equated to the paycheck, to the bottom line. And so I was in it for the slow burn, but I just knew that it just grows, right? It compounds. And so that was the key part, right? It was like, oh, you know, I stopped and started for, I think from 07 to 010, you know, I'd have to go back to work for someone else or go consult because like money ran out. And then when my second child was born, it was like, I couldn't be gone longer than 48 hours. And then things started to change. And it's the momentum you like feed off of it. But yeah, that was it. There was an appeal to it that I wanted to continue to learn about wine. I always wanted to be an entrepreneur and I wanted to have creativity in my life. And the idea of meeting people was the easy part. I waited tables for years. I was an army brat. I moved every two years. And for me, it was never about me being a salesman. I was just there presenting what I made. Well, man, it just seems like a really great place to start. It seems like the hardest place to start, but winemaking is a craft. And so what you're focused on isn't necessarily making money, right? It's on mastery, which can apply to salesmanship and the building of other businesses. And I'm curious to know, what was it about mastery of making wine that you were then able to translate to all of the other businesses that you've gotten into? To me, I think it's just dedication, like learning something, like acquiring a skill, but have being passionate about it and just wanting to learn more. I'm just a curious person and I feel the same thing as if working with wine and telling other people's stories, you know, Somalia is more of a curator, right? We collect people's stories. We didn't really make anything, which is cool and fun, but like going to work harvest and going to visit wineries, that was always satisfying and kind of somewhat closing the circle. And then spending time there, like spending time in Napa Valley and hanging out in wineries before my shift, that felt like, okay, this is the next logical step for me. But then also like knowing that I didn't know everything and being able to learn, like working on the floor at night is the fun part. All during the day, I worked really hard to set myself up for success. It's the hard part. Inventorying the wine, bringing it in, making sure everything's there, accounting for everything, setting things up. That's the show. That's the circus. So the easy part was kind of like making the wine, even though I hadn't in that sense of there was a lot of joy in that part. And then selling it was like crazy. Like I didn't know how to do that either. But I've got to believe that the skills that you acquired when it comes to salesmanship have probably served you incredibly well in the hospitality locations and selling books and a branding agency, right? Yeah. At the very least, it makes you completely unafraid of rejection. You have to be, right? In anything, like it's just no. Like the answer is always no if you never ask. And so for me, walking up to a table of strangers, you know, I waited tables for, I don't know, over a decade. That's an easy thing to do. You know, I think I got to the next level and it was like, oh, and it wasn't selling. Like it's a soft sale, right? Like you're suggesting mm -hmm. these or blah, 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 blah. But I think having a command of the menu and a command of the wine list, people turn those things over to you. So I wasn't really selling anything. They were like, hey, you just choose for us. 
what I realized is like talking in front of the staff, that was a little bit harder, like public speaking, but I embraced that and getting on the road, doing dinner, speaking at colleges, like all of those things became a lot easier because I was uncomfortable talking to, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, these are professionals that are passionate. Like these people that my colleagues that I worked with, they were on top of their game. We used to have this saying at work, work to impress the people that you work side by side with. Because if you can impress them, anybody who walks through the front door is blown away. That's how I looked at it. Like, so if I could stand up in front of these people and talk about wine and they could check me on my shit if it was right or not, was a great thing for me. You know, it was a confidence booster. If I could do it for them, then I could do it for at a table. I could do it 40,000 people. How many people? It didn't matter. And I thought a lot about those skills and those things that I was doing. I think sometimes when the job becomes mundane, picking small and other things that you may be uncomfortable with or less confident about and working on those things. And that's kind of how it kept the job fresh. And definitely in the age of the internet, for me, what makes a job easier? It's like, oh, hey, so maybe I'll dabble in, in social media a little bit. There's all these different facets of being a restaurant owner or being a winery owner. You know what I mean? Like there's things to it. And so it's multifaceted. So sometimes I like to shift gears and focus on other stuff, acquire skills, and it still makes the job interesting to me. Well, it also seems like you're leaning into the discomfort. There's this phrase I heard recently that says that fear is a great indicator of exactly where you should go. And it seems like when you recognize that discomfort, that you lean into it. Oh, I run to it. It's the only way. Or just be more self-aware and say, I'm not uncomfortable doing that. And so I need to hire someone who is and knowing where your strengths are. And I think for me, talking about the next steps or where I saw myself going, I felt like public speaking was something that I needed to be good at. Well, let's talk about next steps. I went to your website. I spent like 30 minutes on it. Took like a two hour nap after <laughs> because you just got a lot going on. Five hospitality locations, restaurants, cafes, wine shops, two books, a branding agency. In your free time, you've created four children, a happy marriage. You do public <laughs> speaking, philanthropy. And I'm sure all of that makes sense in your head, but I want you to make it make sense <laughs> in mine because most folks struggle to keep one business alive. So how did all of this come to pass? Was it part of the plan? How did that plan evolve? I think it was part of the plan. I think for me... I guess the interesting part is when I stopped working for other people, I realized that my days got longer. And the idea that I could pack in, if I went hard, I could put eight hours worth of work into three hours. And so that was it. And so for me, it's just like always pushing the boundaries, always putting stuff on my plate just to push myself. When I moved to New York, I always felt like I wanted to be a part of the restaurant landscape always. And when I moved to New York, I loved it here. It was great but I needed to figure out a way how I could actually afford to live here. So that was one of the things, but I felt like I wanted to continue to learn about wine and I did that. And I built this incredible brand and winery that's all over the world. And it's been fun and hopefully has inspired lots of my colleagues and lots of people in the industry that it's there. You can do it. If I can do it, you can do it. It's just there. You just have to go and get it. And then I wanted to be back in the restaurant business. I wanted to open a little bar. You know, I had been traveling all over the world, eating at the best restaurants. I ate on par with any food critic in the world and seeing 
what was out there and how people were doing stuff and just feeling like, hey, I want to open up a little something in my neighborhood. And, you know, the Anson's ham bar snowballed into like seven businesses or something like that. Six. Was that intentional growth? How did that happen? So now it's just opportunities, right? So I saw a place and it was like, this place is awesome. Cool. I grabbed the place. Two weeks later, the landlord wrote me and said, hey, it's a one building that has two storefronts and the other storefront hadn't rented yet. And he said, hey, I'd love for you to take this other one. He gave me a discount. It was just a good deal that we were like, we'll take it. And then we had a concept. We're like, oh, we'll just put a provision store there. And my wife's like, but you never ran a provision store before. I said, yeah, no, but like, how hard can it be? Right. You know what I mean? Like, how hard could it be? And that's not to understate for all those people who have those jobs and it's hard. It's like, we work really hard. I'm going to make this happen. And then that was in 2017. And then we kind of ran into some construction roadblocks. We didn't get open till January 2020, but in 2019, about a wine store on our street. You know, that was kind of the same thing, traveling, presenting my wines to a wine store and just felt like I was treated like shit. I felt like, you know what? Fuck them. I can do this better than them. And as soon as I walked out of the store, I called my friend who owned the wine shop in our neighborhood. And I said, hey, man, if you're ever looking to sell, they had been open for about three years. I was like, I'm your guy. And he's like, oh, word, let's meet up when you come back. And me and my wife bought the store. And it's that kind of thing, right? And so then we opened the hand bar and now I'm trying to like get bread from some great bread bakeries and they don't deliver. We're too far. It's just too expensive. And then COVID happened and I'm just sitting there and I'm like, well, you know what? Like we should maybe make our own bread. So then one night, maybe one too many glasses of wine and I bought a 26 inch stone mill that took about two months (laughs) for them to build was custom made from new American stone mills. And my wife's like, you know, you don't have a place to fit it. That won't fit in our house. And I was like, I know that means we need to find a place. And so we found a place and I said, you know what? We're just going to make our own bread. And that's kind of how it started. And then now I had like employees, you know, I had significant amount of employees and no one was working out of our brownstone anymore. So we were like, I need an office. So I grabbed an office space (laughs) and then the office space felt like a disservice to the neighborhood and to the street. It wasn't a storefront. It was like a fishbowl. People would always look in and ask us, what are you guys doing in there? And we're like, we're working. So I decided to put in a takeout window in the front and enclose the first 115 square feet. I grew up in Texas and breakfast tacos were one of my favorite things. And I said, you know what? We're going to make breakfast tacos. And it's kind of like my world's colliding. Like I was this guy that went on this amazing kind of culinary journey and worked at the best and grew up on breakfast tacos. And so if we use some of the best ingredients and those techniques and apply them to this, this is what I wanted to do. We use Benton's bacon and, you know, in our breakfast taco. And so we turned that into a breakfast place. And then I just signed a lease at an oyster concept. So all of these are like 90 seconds from my house, from my front door. All of them. All on one street. So it's like, great. I can just walk over to my office. All my neighbors know me for the past decade. I didn't really know my neighbors. I was home for the weekend. And so we wanted to contribute to the changing narrative of the neighborhood. As things were changing, I kept asking myself, what do we have the offer to this landscape? And me and my wife, you know, we worked in restaurants and we said, hey, we'll open a restaurant. So we opened that one. And then at the end, we're just like, let's just run it, right? Because there's no place to get bread. Let's get bread. There's no this, let's do that. And so that's kind of how it worked. I mean, it feels like it's in the plan, right? <laughs> because, I, you know, maybe I wrote it in like on the margins, but it's like 
as those opportunities come, I think like adjusting for them. And I think my whole thing changed maybe seven years in, basically, as I realized that people were willing to pay more for experiences and those things mattered. I set up, we didn't really sell, we don't have a tasting room because I was like, I don't need a tasting room. I've seen all the tasting rooms. Most of them are empty most of the time. It's a seasonal business, whatever. I don't need that. And then I started to realize like, oh, things are changing as you start to see restaurants are kind of the last bastion of places where people actually go. And that's really being challenged hard by DoorDash and stuff like that. But the fact that like Urban Outfitters bought Mark Vetri's pizza place and started to put pizza places inside of their stores to drive traffic and business. And that wine was really starting to become part of a lifestyle movement. Restoration Hardware puts wine bars. And I just started looking and had this concept of like 360 degree hospitality. As you're talking, like I picture one of two scenarios. The first is, is that you're sitting at a desk counting stacks of money or the alternative scenario is that you're running up and down the street in a rubber apron, right? Doing the dishes <laughs> between one place and the next. For me, it begs two questions, which is the first one revolves around profitability. I would assume that the business fundamentals are different in every concept. How do you ensure that one, that you've built an ecosystem that everything kind of works off each other? And secondly, how do you make sure that all of these different business models make money? Well, I mean, ideally, we'd hope that they make money. <laughs> we're like overseeing them. And like the idea, they were all created to overlap, right? As we share some employees, as we sell things to ourselves, bread and, and those other kind of things and making stuff in-house for us. I would have to say at one point, it, I just want to be in the black. It's not about making money. I mean, I know that sounds weird. It's not about making money in that sense. It's doing something that I love, giving the people who work with me the opportunity. I mean, granted, we make money. Granted, I want to make money. But the idea of it is less about that. And I know that most people don't have the opportunity to do that or even to look at it that way. But at least for me, it, it seems like it's, you know, the five-year plan is like, just grow something and make something. And then after five years, we'll reevaluate whether or not it makes money. I think my biggest thing was like not wanting to peak too soon, getting there too soon, right? Just like at neighborhood wise, but they're all very small places. Kingfisher, which is our seafood concept is probably our largest and that opens in February, but everything is pretty small, which means we have great rent. And if you sell high ticket items, you get there very quickly. Everybody's talking about thinking small and smaller teams, smaller footprints, smaller offerings. Before you would think I've got to have at least 10,000 square feet to make money in the restaurant industry. But that model has been proven wrong. And it seems like you're proving it wrong in real time. Yeah. Well, you don't need a lot of people to make it look full, right? Right. If you sell out, yeah, you sell yeah. out. That creates a buzz, gets people excited about what's happening. And then especially in a place like New York, it makes it affordable in a way that I wouldn't think that I would ever be able to compete or play in this game here in New York. It's pretty cool. The idea of a famous chef opening a neighborhood restaurant, we don't take reservations just because of that, right? It's just like you just mm -hmm. rock up and see if we have a table because we want our neighbors, you know, it's destination for quite a few people, but at least our neighbors can come get a table or come by and stop and get a drink. It's just, 
had an older woman walk up to me the other day and just say, hey, you're Andre Mack? I'm like, yeah. And she goes, I just want to say thank you. And I was like, okay, for what? And she says, I know that you could have opened this place anywhere in the world, but the fact that you opened it here in our neighborhood, I appreciate that. That means something to me. And it also means something to me that like, generally when we're talking about the whole instance of gentrification, a lot of times it's not people who look like me that are actually involved in the new stuff that's actually happening in the neighborhood. And that feels great to my neighbors. It feels great to me that I could be in the position to participate. Are you busy? I'm really busy. Personally? Yeah. You know, um, trying to make it all work. Like I said, I'd like to put a lot of stuff on my plate. Well, but as you look to February, as you look to Kingfisher opening, are you putting the pieces in place to make sure that you can make that transition? Yeah. We've been interviewing, hiring, just training, just trying to like get people here, get people involved. I'm doing more and more on like the Andre Mack brand. So I'm doing a lot more television and that kind of stuff. And that really presented itself in a way where I do need to step back. And then also like just being in the restaurant sometimes is a little bit overwhelming. I mean, it's overwhelming just being the owner. You you know what I'm saying? Like you're the owner of the restaurant. Yeah, oh, I, I do. Right. Like you're the rock star, but it's starting to get a little overwhelming in the restaurant being there, which sucks because I love being there. I feel you. It was an amazing feeling when I was standing in the middle of it, orchestrating the whole thing. And I felt like the most important person in the world in that moment. And it was, it was a very strange feeling the first time I walked into my own restaurant and I was in the way because there were all of these diligent professionals surrounding <laughs> me. And I was just literally making their day worse by standing wherever I was. It was a walkway. I can't even explain it to you. And it's a good feeling, but it's a terrible feeling as well. No, it feels terrible to me right now. <laughs> I get it because like the best use of my time is not bussing a table or wiping down sure. the table or pouring wine, right? But I do get it. It does feel the whole reason why I built it was to have the feeling of being in there, in the trenches. But the day will come where you are in the way and you may not know the names of everybody. I want to talk about accessibility. I love Albert Einstein. He's like one of my favorite people on the planet. And the reason is, is that he was able to take really complex things and boil it down into something really simple that the masses could understand. He talked about the theory of relativity and tried to explain it to someone by saying the theory of relativity explains why when a girl sits on your lap for an hour, it seems like a minute. But when you sit on a hot stove, a minute seems like an hour. And you've tried to do the same thing in large part with both food and with wine. You're trying to translate these complex ideas into something accessible and simple. And it's illustrated on your wine website in a way that like, you really clearly set the expectation for even a novice of what the experience of consuming your wine would be like. And I'm curious to know, one, where that approach came from, and two, how it served you, not necessarily in the wine industry, but certainly in the hospitality industry. Where it comes from is where I come from. Like to have to explain to my family what I did. My mom was like, baby, you are what? What you doing? I said, a sommelier. She said, what's that? So you walk around the restaurant dressed up, pouring wine, talking about wine, and they pay you this kind of money. Like they just didn't know that this job existed, let alone that there was someone like me interested in it. And like in having to like explain what it is I did because I had to explain it to my family. Like no one in my family drank wine or 
ate at places at this level, like those kind of things. No one was a part of that. And so I think just being able to like distill it down and to talk about it in layman's terms was the easy thing for me. You know, it's like you were somewhere and you're like, so they said, what, this is polenta? What's polenta? I was like, oh shit, they ain't nothing but grits. You know what I'm saying? Like there's a name, you know what I mean? It's like, those are just grits, right? Like, okay. That's a better way to explain it. And I think wine was the same way. Like how wine was taught to me was just very simple. And I laugh because people always ask me like, what book did I start with? And it was Wines for Dummy, which is funny because I think a lot of people are offended by those books titles, right? You know what I mean? Like I think they mm -hmm. went away, they don't make them anymore. But that book was a really big help and just like laying down the basics. And there's a lot of things to overcome. Like it's this, the wording, geography, access, like, you need money to drink wine. Language is a big one. I always just felt if I could make it fun and I could keep it simple, it would be easier. And hospitality, it would be easier for me. It almost seemed like for a lot of the guests, like I was on their side. So the design was always the same to create something that was less intimidating, even though it's a very yep. intimidating circumstance in general. I mean, even when you walk down the wine aisle at the grocery store. How do you choose from a thousand options? And it's funny. And then we blame everybody for buying by the label. Like, of course, that's what you do. That's like how you buy shoes. The design part was just the fun part. It was like making it relatable. You know what I mean? I didn't like invent this. I was so into wine. Everything I saw reminded me of wine. The labels are very simple and very plain. I just wanted to do something different. But also like hopefully encouraging. I mean, like it's a big thing now. Like everybody has a t-shirt and not just with their logo on it. Like it something punny, something fun, something they stand for. And I think that's really cool and fun. And like, we kind of all stepped from underneath this rock in this place to say that we have a choice to say what the wine business and what the wine industry can look like and feel like and be like. And I think we just took leads from the chefs who were doing it. It's a super inspiring time for sure. And this is an industry podcast. And I'm curious to know if you have any advice or words of encouragement for the folks listening today. I do. I do. Go get that shit. Go get it. Like it's there. Go get it. Everything that you ever thought about once, go do it. Look it up. Like spend that time and energy on that small idea that you have. Go to places that people wouldn't go. Like people are like, oh shit, fuck those kitchens and blah, 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 blah. It's like whatever it is. If you like a McRib, remake the rib McRib. Like, it's everything. Like, I've done video games with wine. Like, do everything. Do, like, the stuff that moves you and motivates you because we all need it. Now it's like everybody's afraid to say, oh, well, I can't make that because I like that because I actually, I'm not from the place that actually made it. No, you can because that's what chefs do. It's your recreation of this thing that you fell in love with or that went somewhere. It's not that you're, like, trying to shut the people out who actually originally made it. Just go for it. Don't be afraid. I always thought like, oh man, I can't find the money. I can't do that. I've never written a business plan. You just go do it. It sounds very simple. I mean, that's really what I tell people. It's like on the other side of fear is everything you ever wanted. And it, okay, yeah, you have to sacrifice. There's sacrifices. You know, I've sacrificed time and things with my family, but I didn't forget that I made those sacrifices. And on the other side of that as well, I get to spend time with them. It's there. Think outside the box. Now you're looking at collaboration. I told people, I was like, I don't even want to work with anybody in wine. I don't even want to work with anybody in food on the other side. Collaborate. Be with other creative people, people that get your juices flowing. And like those things and those friendships will spark ideas. 
And there's so much content going on right now. There's so many places for content to live. And if that's your thing, you should do that as well. I just say, go for it. Like all of it, everything you ever thought about or thought about doing or wanted to do, do it. Like think of how many people are doing podcasts because of the pandemic or everything because of the pandemic. You realize at some point life is too short and you should be really doing the things that really move you. You know what I mean? If it means taking less pay and being happy, then I'm all for that. That's Andre Houston Mack. To check out all of Andre's projects, visit andremack.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.